Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, we have our monthly journal club edition where we focus on research articles as the springboard for interviews with authors, educators, and clinical experts. My name is Dan Chapman. I'm a US-based physical therapist and owner of Chapman PT in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm Chelsea Kuman, a physical therapist and athletic trainer at True Sports Physical Therapy in Baltimore, Maryland as well. So joining us today is Dr. Claire Minchel. Dr. Minchel has over 20 years experience in the rehab as well as strength and conditioning world. She has her PhD in exercise science and rehab. She's an international speaker and author, researcher and practitioner and provides leading education and training for healthcare professionals through in-person courses as well as online courses at her website, getbacktosport.com. Claire, welcome to JOSPT Insights. It's wonderful to have you on, and we're really looking forward to learning more about rate of force development with you. Thank you so much for the invite. Let's start with just like the very basics, because some people know this really well, some people don't know it at all. What's like the basic definition of rate of force development? So really what we're we're talking about is the speed of muscle force production. Uniquely, RFD, rate of force development, is typically measured within laboratory settings because it requires some quite stringent criteria and measurement settings, if you like, to to be able to measure that. So then how is that different than power? RFD is uh, often used interchangeably with muscle power. And it's not really problematic, but it's not exactly the same thing. Rate of force development is typically measured in laboratory settings. And that is an important component of muscle power, but it's not exactly the same thing. And typically when we look at muscle power and particularly in assessment settings and in clinical settings, we're measuring that, I suppose, the end result of that, which also involves mass and, and the body. So could it be a, you know, a measurement of muscle power might be a vertical jump. It might be sprint speed over a particular distance. And, and pragmatically, that's an easier thing to do in, in a, like clinical settings as well, where you don't have all this instrumentation. But rate of force development does, you know, it's an important component of muscle power, but it's just not exactly the same thing because you've got all these additional things that need to happen thereafter. So you've constrained the, the, the limb and it's not moving anywhere. But thereafter, you know, if you think you stood upright and you're required to sprint, then you need to accelerate that that limb segment against gravity or, you know, whatever position you're in. So there's there's extra components required. So that RFD is just like a component of power. The power is maybe more like the functional expression of RFD. Would that be a way to say it? That's a really nice way to put it. Yeah. And I think it's the functionally what are you able to do and 
as I said, pragmatically, what are you able to measure? Maybe we get onto that a bit, bit later. And so, Claire, uh, rate of force development is a pretty complex issue where we have contractile and non-contractile components. Obviously, there's a big neural contribution as well. Would you mind fleshing out the different pieces of that for us? There's different components, as you, as you rightly identified there, that lead to us, you know, a particular measurement of newtons per second. And you could, I guess, broadly cl- classify these as neural, think about the input into the musculature, the drive into the musculature, the recruitment, the motor unit recruitment, maybe the synchrony of firing. You've then got the, the contractile tissue, so the musculature, so its activation, and then maybe the cross-sectional area of that muscle, muscle group, and also thinking about the fiber type composition of that muscle or muscle group as well. So as you might expect, great, you know, fast twitch, broadly fast twitch motor units, muscle fibers probably have a a quicker rate of force development than than slower. And then you've got then the need to transfer that muscle force to bone. So that's where things like the tendon, muscle tendon interface can can play a role. So it's stiffness or stiffer uh, tendon would convey a a quicker muscle force transition to bone than than a, a more compliant tendon. And the extent of that influence would be determined where, from where you're measuring rate of force development onset. So are you measuring from onset of electromyographic activity in the muscle? So it's switching on because we've got a process before rate of force development, this electromechanical delay at the switch on times. Or are you measuring actually at the, the first registration of muscle force? So, yeah, you've got like broadly three kind of components there. That seems like it could play a part in, in injury risk and and rehabilitation? We think possibly so. I mean, it's really difficult to measure at the point of injury, isn't it? You know, think about how quickly injury happens. A perturbation, maybe unexpected, maybe it's it's uh, non-contact as well. You need a really fast and forceful response from, and maybe even pre-programmed from the, the dynamic stabilizers of that joint to harness those potentially noxious dynamic forces. So we're thinking that the temporal responses of the musculature are potentially quite important because if it's very slow and very sluggish and then you know it's possibly too late to do anything about it so when we're thinking about rehab we're thinking about conditioning i think it's important to acknowledge timing and maybe some of this explosive force production type uh, parameters when we're thinking about rehab it's it's much easier to measure muscle strength and i'm not saying muscle strength isn't important anybody that's read any of my stuff will, will know that i think it's super important but I don't think we should just be blinkered by muscle force, you know, because we can, you know, when we're measuring strength, we've got no temporal limitations. It's just as long as it takes to get up to the maximal point. And all we're taking is the maximal point. But we don't often need to produce maximal muscle force in a you know injury avoidance situation. So we're then thinking, okay, it's important to have sufficient force, but it's also important to be able to express it quickly. Yeah, I mean, in your typical non-contact ACL injury, you're really not expressing a maximal force output, but rather a, you know, a sub-maximal movement really quickly. So what you're saying in- intuitively makes a lot of sense to me, particularly when you're talking about you know, rehabbing athletes on the field. When when I was reading your 2012 paper with lead author Ricky Hanna, I found that paper fascinating. Would you touch on that a bit regarding the differences or really the lack thereof between the RFD of males and females? So, so Ricky Hanna was was first author of that, and um, way back a former PhD student of mine in a very very established research in his own right. So 
absolutely, you might see that males produce more force in absolute terms than females, but they're larger, you know, they've got greater muscle cross-sectional area, so it kind of makes sense. So it's important then to, to relativize to that individual's capability. So when you relativize their, you know, let's say, strength to body mass, then it, it shows that, there's, that there isn't a difference. So we've got potentially equivalent force-producing capabilities between sexes, as long as, you know, you're going for matched populations and, you know, clearly you could demonstrate one if you've got resistance trained versus none. But if we're taking matched populations, then there's not a really strong body of evidence that says, yeah, you know, it's definitely down to neuromuscular parameters. Females are slower, they, they're weaker. And even that's shown when you relativize it to to their own strength capabilities or the body mass capabilities. And it's not, it's not really answering that, that question very well. And interestingly, you know, it might be that they, they perform slightly better under fatigue conditions versus males as well. So maybe just demonstrating a a superior performance or, or less negative performance. Okay, so that was a wonderful segue, Claire. Because so so basically you're saying the strength is related to RFD. So how is fatigue related to RFD then? Okay, so if you think let's just just um look at strength again just for to, to clarify. I like to think, you know, if you explain to to non-neurophysiologists and actually people that are importantly rehabbing people and trying to make sense of all this. So it's not just ACL stuff. It's, you know, think about falls prevention or consequently, you know, posture correction. So fatigue here is going to be representative of a loss in maximal force generating capacity. And under those experimental conditions, we would define fatigue has happened if there's a reduction in muscle force in peak force production. So do we see changes to rate of force development performance under fatigue conditions? And, and often, yes, we do. And if you think about you know, what you're compromising, so those super high intensity efforts, you are using fast twitch motor units and muscle fibers. Those are the ones that produ- produce those force, but uh, sorry, high production of force quickly, but also a negative of that is that they, you know, they're, they're highly fatigable, aren't they? So you see a loss in, in force production and a loss in rate of force production. And sometimes you see a loss in or an increased delay in force production, that electromechanical delay. So if we think a model for injury risk might involve speed and force of muscle force production as a a way to harness dynamic joint forces, then potentially fatigue might have an influential role. If you think about another way of describing loss in muscle force capabilities, if we're thinking about that stuff that brings about DOMS, you know, that delayed onset muscle soreness, a day or two later after novel exercise, you really feel like, you know, you want to walk down the stairs backwards because it's too painful going (laughs) forwards, you know, that horrible stuff. So that's different in terms of the mechanisms. It's acute muscle fatigue can recover quite quickly, often in minutes, depending on what's happened before. But exercise-induced muscle damage, which is brought about by principally, you know, eccentric exercise, so where we're asking the musculature to produce force while being lengthened and if it's novel or you've done a new exercise regime you've gone back playing having not played for a long time then you get this micro trauma to the musculature and that's a slightly different way in which muscle force capabilities are, are compromised but you again can see that that's that's you know induces a reduction in muscle strength depending on how severe <laughs> the exercise was and indeed the same in terms of rate of, of force uh, development that can be compromised as well 
So that exercise-induced damage is going to create a type of fatigue. And then because you won't be able to produce as much force, strength, then you won't be able to produce it at any sort of rate. So it's going to decrease RFD. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what we're missing then is if that actually applies to our theory of how important RFD is in injury prevention, right? We don't know that piece, like how how RFD actually influences injury prevention and so therefore how fatigue influences injury prevention? Fatigue and maybe muscle damage, so acute or prolonged compromise capabilities might influence the dynamic stabilizer of a joint and negatively so. If you're operating at 50% maximal strength, 50% maximal RFD capabilities and you're going out on the field of play and you're doing dynamic activities with twisting, turning, change directions, unexpected perturbations, in that conceptual framework, that conceptual model, you might theorize, and actually maybe that does represent potentially higher risk of injury because my force producing capabilities are reduced. We, you know, there's think about mechanism of ACL injury, anterior tibial translation with rotation. You need to harness that at some point. <laughs> and if if that's not occurring, and certainly in a, a, a non-contact situation, something inherently intrinsically might have, have failed or hasn't been sufficient enough to, to prevent that injury from happening. But when we're looking principally at RFD, is that the one that we need to focus on? We, we can't say, but we might theorize that speed of force production is important, and it might be remiss of us to miss, you know, to not look at this in the rehabilitation process. We've recently completed a, uh, a randomized control trial that looked at the cross-education effect. So we're hammered opposite side, uh, post-ACL reconstruction with a normal rehab on the injured side. We're testing them at 10 weeks post-surgery. And you can even see this in, in, in other populations that we've tested as well. You're asking people to do a maximal voluntary contraction of the knee extensors, knee flexors of the injured side or the rehab side, or the surgical side, whichever is, is compromised, you might see there's not tremendous differences in maximal strength capabilities in some people or the ability to get there. But they, certainly there's this massive variability in the slope of that curve. So people's propensity to absolutely explosively produce force. Now, whether that's cognitively driven, you know, consciously, whether it's subconscious, whether it's part of atherogenic uh, uh, muscle inhibition, there's all these other contributing factors. So whilst you might say, actually, they're really strong, if we're not looking at how we get there and we've got the capabilities to do that, then we're, we're missing a trick. And so for those who don't have a biodex in their clinic, but want to look at explosiveness in, in, in RFD, is there a way to clinically uh, assess rate of force development? So I think if if you get anywhere near to thinking about that as being important, I think you're you know way ahead of of so many people to start with. If you're measuring, you know, thinking about explosive performance again, a step on from that. That's that's, that's awesome. The difficulty is you quite rightly saying it's it's almost impossible for clinicians to measure this accurately in in clinical situations because you need that instrumentation. The problem, the, the pragmatic thing to do would be to think about using tests, standardized tests of power, stuff like vertical jumps or sprints, whatever it is that the athlete is going back to that, you know, you think is an important component part of that. 
And then I guess if you if you scale back from that, you still might need some instrumentation. So if you think very basic stuff, maybe an uh, instrumented jump mat or a force platform, if we're thinking about vertical jump, if you've got absolutely nothing, you know, what is it that you could do to design a test of power, which in some way might tap into uh, explosive force production? And that might even be measuring how far you can throw a standard projectile. It might be, I, I don't know, things that we've come up with before, sitting on a, for, for upper limb, sitting on a chair, standard, you know, you've got this standard chair, no wheels. The chair's against the back of a wall. It's in a particular position, the standardizing foot positions. And you've got a, like a med ball of some weight. Now, whether that weight is relativized to that individual's mass or whether it's a standard weight that that happened, you know, it's a, about five kilogram and then they've got a, a particular way in which they have to carry out this this task you know to throw the the ball in a particular way and you're measuring distance now clearly there's a huge amount of variability in that but is it such that you can you know repeat that test on several people you've got an idea of the coefficient of variation of what that is it just gives you a little bit of insight into into improvement with with no instrumentation whatsoever I feel like on all of the things that we, there's in, in the research world about rate of force development, it's potentially a problem and here it is and here are how it relates to strength and it might be important and that's where it ends. So what, how do we train this? How do, is, is, is cueing a back squat to go as quickly as you can standing up? Is that enough to cue something like this? What is the best way to actually train rate of force development and power? So I think you would probably look at this from a periodized approach. So first and foremost, I think we need to look at muscle strength first. So once we've done that and, and inherent within that training, you will get some rate force development um, improvements, particularly if they're reasonably untrained as well. So if you think about that force time curve, it's the initial part of that first part of the curve from let's say zero to 50 milliseconds, 75 milliseconds there about that really down to the recruitment and drive and recruitment of those those motor units. Thereafter, there's an increasing strength relationship to muscle strength, muscle force that we're trying to produce, uh, sorry, train through muscle strengthening. And that's where those heavy loads, low number of repetitions with a good amount of rest in between sets can help bring about perhaps later phase rate of force development improvements. There's a shared physiologic um, kind of determination or determinants, if you like, between the two indices. So it makes sense that, you know, if, if muscle strength is in some way determined by motor unit recruitment of fast twitch and synchrony of fire and that kind of thing, then it makes sense that there'll be some crossover to rate of force development when some of that is determined by that as well. So you'll get some adaptation with, with high load, heavy resistance training. And then the other parts are explosive training. And, and I think here the real determination whether or not you get that is the intent to be explosive and to lift heavy. So in those populations that you don't have as much time to periodize, I'd say just tell people to be explosive in their strength training. Hit it, explode, whatever cue that you want to use uh, with them that means something to them. And it's that that really helps bring on that firing, synchrony of firing input into the musculature, the drive, and, and probably enhances a little bit more that early phase of rate of force development. If you're thinking about it from a resistance training perspective, setting up your 
exercises to incorporate those parameters being explosive. Let's say you can do heavy deadlifts and you might do three to five rep max. You probably get a, a shared adaptation. You know, you get muscle strength adaptation. You get some rate of force development adaptation in that compound lift. Now, if you want to make that more explosive, you maybe want to drop the weight a bit. And your aim is to lift that thing off the floor as fast as you possibly can. Now, whether it moves as fast as you intend it to move, I don't think that's the point so much in that it's the intent to be explosive. <laughs> and that can start to really, uh, as I said, focus on that kind of recruitment. And, you know, you can do maybe even lighter loads. And this, I guess, where you then go into maybe plyometrics training and or, you know, I like to think about that phase of training to incorporate what you'd be doing on the field or on the court or you know, really make it a bit more sport specific. So you're doing, doing, you know, you've got topped up your fuel tank of strength. You've learned how to express it through, you know, your resistance-based training and being explosive. And then now you're deploying it in meaningful situations. In another 2012 paper that you published, you looked at the effects of muscle damage caused by a brutal eccentric set of, of, of hamstring contractions. I think it was six by 10. And this was on untrained individuals. And you were looking at impairments to, to maximal force, but also rate of force development and found notable impairments up to a week or so after. Do, do we know the extent to which RFD is impaired in trained individuals? Yeah, that was that was a nasty protocol. It was, and and hamstrings, we we tend to see a bit more damage in hamstrings than we do in quads. Force deficits, rate of force development, and strength, we, you know, still compromised a week later. That's you know a very very severe bout of muscle damage. And whether or not an individual or trained individuals would experience the same level of deficit is a good question. If if they're concentrically trained only then potentially so because we know shortening training so there's plenty of studies out there that show if you just do concentric muscle activations and concentric training so where the muscle is shortening and then you do about muscle damage you get you know a very <laughs> significant response by comparison to if you do you know eccentric concentric it stands to reason and this is dulled down to you know the repeated bout effect so if you do an episode of eccentric muscle work so take that study we did so six by ten 60 degrees per second eccentric hamstring activations if we did that two weeks later you'll find that the extent of impairment the ck spikes the doms response everything would have been attenuated because of the adaptation process that occur occurs afterwards so if your individuals are trained and a lot of that training uses eccentric muscle work, then we could reasonably assume they wouldn't be as impaired as, as sedentary or not untrained individuals. You know, where my head naturally goes here is, is tapering your patients or clients and lead up to a big event. And typically we think about how heavy loading prior to an event without tapering may have consequences as far as muscle force and performance degradation. But your studies really show that RFD should, should really be in that conversation as well. Maybe under those circumstances, if you're talking about elite athletes that have very structured training programs, you maybe they've done loads of pre-season work, they've got a very full fuel tank of strength. Maybe that in that circumstance, strength isn't the most important index. Maybe it's the ability to express that force quickly that's, that's the most limiting factor. So we were able to cover like what it is, why it's important, 
how it's different and how it plays into strength and, and power, how it relates to what we know of how it relates to injury and then what we don't know of how it relates to injury. So then how it's going to influence rehab, both preventing future injury and then recovering from injury. And then how the heck we like actually implement that into a rehabilitation program. Does that hit all of the important things that you want to share with the world, Claire, about RFD? That sounds pretty good. We acknowledge that it's a strange situation. You can't really measure it, but you need to look at it. Pragmatically, what you can do to try try to assess this and what you can do to try and train it even when you're not injured. I'd say once you've you've considered strength, then think about expression of that strength. So simply put, can people activate quickly? So thinking about explosive activation, so cueing your patients to lift quickly. And that can make a huge difference as well in terms of motor unit recruitment and drive and certainly in in people that have never lifted before or are fairly novice to this. So explosive activations, explosive lifts. And, you know, even if you never properly consider rate of force development, then even that little tip would likely convey a better benefit to, to rate of force development than just you know, you've got all the time in the world to lift that. So don't worry as long as, you know, you get there within, I don't know, five seconds or something. Think about being strong, but being able to use that quickly, because no matter where you look from athlete through to all the person stumbling, getting out of the chair, we need a fast production of force and in a, you know, a meaningfully quick time. So being able to do that very quickly requires initially in that, that, that training phase that, explosive activation. So I think explosive is the word. I like that. Claire, where can people find you on social media uh, or on your websites? Sure. Uh, So I'm on Twitter at Claire underscore Minchel. I'm also on Facebook uh, and Instagram at Get Back to Sport. Claire, we have learned a ton talking with you and I'm sure the listeners have as well. Thank you so much for joining us at JOSPT Insights. Uh, It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for uh, inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time.